Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we discuss the latest updates from the battlefront, looking in particular at a number of explosions reported in occupied Crimea, and Dom Nichols discusses an encounter he had with the Latvian Defence Minister. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Tuesday, the 16th of August, day 174, and today I'm joined by the Telegraph's defence and security editor Dominic Nichols and assistant comment editor Francis Sternley. I started by asking Dom for the latest news from Crimea. Yeah, hi David, hi everybody. It's been a very busy morning up to and including the last 20 minutes as there's reports coming in of of more blasts. It seems as if in the last 24 hours there have been at least three huge explosions in Crimea at militarily significant uh, bases. I'm not going to attempt to pronounce the the names because I'll I'll get it all wrong. I'm not going to try and pass myself off as as an expert in the the language. But uh, it will become clear later through the day quite quite what is what but it looks like there's there was first of all a blast at a at a, an electricity substation very close to a railway a main rail and road interchange in the north of Crimea um, that, now there may have been two blasts there the electricity substation seems to has been seen on fire and a, a few hundred meters away there seems to be an ammunition depot that has also gone up in smoke uh, in in very dramatic fashion. Other images from that blast has shown munitions flying out all over the place. I mean, you'll see images on social media. People people filming this as as projectiles are coming towards them. It's actually it's quite extraordinary footage. Now the ammunition dump there that's understandable. We can see why that may have been targeted. Sorry, I'm I'm, I'm 
getting ahead of myself here. I'm assuming these are Ukrainian, uh, the result of Ukrainian action. I'm not. I'm not suggesting they are ammunition uh, accidents. Although slight, slight caveat. Russia does not handle its ammunition very well in the way that we would do in the West. They largely leave it out in the open where it's subject to temperature and humidity uh, ranges and therefore it can be quite unstable. Certainly the older stuff, and we think they've burnt through a huge amount of ammunition in this war, so they're probably using the older stuff and that may be even more susceptible to uh, temperature and humidity. So there is a chance that the the, the ammunition explosion could have been just faulty handling. However, that, that aside... Let's think that it's uh, let's let's move on with the suggestion that this is Ukrainian military action. So the ammunition dump, you can see why they would attack that. The electricity substation seems to control the rail line, which runs from Crimea uh, north into southern uh, the mainland of, of southern Ukraine, which is obviously vital for Russia to reinforce its its positions there, particularly with very heavy artillery ammunition. And to, to do to move all that stuff by road is much longer and slower, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So that's the ammunition base, uh, ammunition depot and the electricity substation towards the north of the country. Now, there's also a military aviation base sort of in the, in the middle-ish of, of Crimea, just uh, looks like about 20 or 30 k's east of the Saki air base. And this is reported to have been, this is in the last half an hour we're seeing these, these images. This seems to be a base for helicopters, possibly fixed-wing aircraft as well. Um, again, uh, explosions seen there on social media. And um, uh, it it is has been geolocated as a, as a separate instance. So we we are happy to say, or I'm confident to say that there are at least three three blasts today. Now the Russian Defence Ministry have said of the blast at the ammunition depot there were no serious casualties. Uh, quite what they judge to be a serious casualty. Bearing in mind their their attitude towards human life, um, I don't know, but they're saying no serious casualties. Um, you know, take that with a salt mine if you like. Um, and also, Russian state media was reporting the, the blast at the transformer substation nearby. So uh, something does seem to be happening. We're not entirely sure who or what uh, are the cause. But uh, if we take it as a read that these are um, the result of Ukrainian military activity, then yet again, just as we saw at Saki, something has got through the defences. On, on the, in the images I've seen, even though, like I say, some of it is only just coming out in the last 20 or 30 minutes, but in all the images, there's no no footage of of munitions landing. Now you might say that, well, you're not going to see that if you if if somebody's just grabbed their phone and, and reacted to the blast over on the horizon. You know, you're not going to see the first things that go in, and there may not may not be any further further munitions. But uh, that and that's that's absolutely valid. But I just raise the point again that uh, today, just like with the Saki airbase attack last week, we've not seen anything on social media where there's any any hint of a, you know, a sudden flash of something, a ballistic missile coming in or a, of a drone hovering nearby or anything like that. So it, it does suggest that these are the result of, of action on, on the ground. Um, now, what does that mean? Does that mean that there's, there's bands of roving partisans who are able to coordinate and have su- access to supplies such that they can cause this kind of damage possible? I doubt it personally. I mean, th- these look very organized very coordinated these are um it's very helpful to do it now in the shaping phase if you like that's not too military wonkism but the shaping phase of of whatever's going to happen next in the Curzon front um if these blasts had happened spread out over the last few months they would have been very helpful but doing it all now in the space of a a, a very small number of of days i mean it does it's going to have an effect and and therefore if 
Ukraine looking to do something in the Kurzon front, this is this is the time to be attacking these these deep uh, areas of ammunition, um, attacking the rail lines, attacking the air bases and Crimea. So it's the right time to do it. I'm not sure I would suggest it's partisan activity. Um, I've seen no evidence that it comes from the air. Um, so what does that leave? There's there's long-wind speculation. This is a special forces type operation. I think the spe- a lot of the spe- speculation comes from people just being really excited to say special forces. The worst phrase in the military lexicon, by the way, special forces. Um, but anyway, um, hobby horse. Um, so if this is special forces activity, um, what does that mean? Have these people of whatever size, have they been in U- on Crimea for months? Have they been there since the start of the war? And just lying low, I doubt it. I don't think you'd be able to hide to this degree in the in the woods and and live off live off the land, or what have you. So, are they passing amongst the population and then sort of keeping their heads down until they're they're asked to go and do their mission? Very possibly, or have they been moved in it just in the last few weeks, um, maybe to hide or to or to operate amongst the people? We don't know, but they've probably got a, a large cache, probably a, a series of caches of of ammunition uh, and um, explosives. So if one's compromised, they've got they've got others to fall back on, and if this is a a unit or a small small band of determined men and women cutting about doing all this stuff, then um, I would imagine they have been put in recently. There's unlikely to be in any resupply by air, by drone, but you know in the dead of night kind of thing. Unlikely that they'd be able to move stuff from the coast. So I would have thought this would take this would have taken months to to build up, or certainly weeks to build up. And if this is a special forces unit doing this, I don't think you could generate that kind of capability in six months. So I think these uh, these people are are homegrown. They may well have had training from the West, maybe UK, US, Tier 1 SF type thing, given them training over the last few years. But this is a very professional operation, if it is. And everything is heavily caveated with if this is a special forces uh, unit uh, running running a mock not a mock, but you know, causing chaos as they as they should do, as they expected to, in Crimea, um, and in which case, so either they have been trained by the West over the preceding years, or when all this is over, they need to come and they need to come and help train the train the West. I'm not saying that that we're not able to do it ourselves, but you know, these are very very professional operations, seemingly at the at the moment, um, and I'd be fascinated to to read the the lessons learned from it from. Um, you know the after action review type type sketch from the Ukrainians on this. So, but you know that is speculation. I, I don't know. I, I'm leaning towards that way because I'm less likely. I'm less inclined to think that it's a, a you know, something from the air. Um, but that is speculation. What is not speculation is that there have been a, at least three major blasts in areas of of very big military significance to Russia and Crimea in the last 24 hours. Thank you very much, Dom. We'll come back to uh, why special forces is potentially an unhelpful term, uh, just to help our audience uh, understand more about the conflict uh, later. Can I ask you one thing before we move to Francis Sternley? Uh, today, the Ministry of Defence, this is the British Ministry of Defence, um, spoke a little bit about Russia's Black Sea Fleet and wh- why it's struggling, in their view, to exercise uh, control of the sea. Can you can you talk a little bit about this? What struggle, what issues is the Russian Black Sea f- uh, Fleet facing, and what impact has that, has that had on the war? Well, I think I think the struggle they're facing is Neptune anti-ship missiles or Harpoon anti-ship missiles. They have Black sea, Russia's Black Sea fleet has lost its flagship, the Moskva. It has lost control of Snake Island, and uh, according to today's report from UK Defence Intelligence, it is only able to take a quote defensive posture, 
um, only able to conduct patrols within sight of the Crimean coast. It's still firing long-range cruise missiles, but struggling to um, to achieve sea control, i.e. ownership of the sea, so so other things can can cut about, but um, effectively, you, you know, you, you own the own the area. And uh, UK defence intelligence is saying this quote limited effectiveness unquote means that the amphibious threat to Edessa has been largely neutralised. Their phrase largely neutralised simply because if the if the fleet doesn't want to go anywhere outside or out of sight of of land of Crimea, then it's you know it's not it's not really doing an awful lot. And if Ukraine holds Snake Island and we don't know what munitions they've been able to put on there, but that will dominate the the northwest of the Black Sea, and uh, as I say, largely, largely take away the threat to Odessa, but l- largely means that you know, what, what's the Black Sea fleet then doing? So this is, um, if, a, if a force feels that it, um, that it, it is the, the, the hunted rather than the hunter, I mean, the effect that has on your, on your confidence, your morale is, is significant. And if you're not able to operate as a, as a fleet, if you don't have surface, subsurface and air, you know, airborne air cover, then um, is it worth putting to sea in the first place? Because you are very, very vulnerable. That might well be the, the position they feel they are in now. I mean, it, it sort of hints that there aren't many Russian submarines in the Black Sea. Uh, we don't know. We don't know how many they they have up there. How many they managed to put in before the before Turkey closed the Straits at the start of the war. But you know, a fleet that does, doesn't feel confident to operate does does not suggest that it it is. Um, that it knows that it's being looked after from under under the water. So I think the, the Black Sea Fleet is a largely, I, I won't say rendered irrelevant because it is still firing long-range calibre uh, cruise missiles and, and others um, and having you know, a horrendous effect on Ukraine's civilian and military uh, architecture and population. So it, it, is, it is still effective. Or it can be effective in, in, um, in a very limited manner, but it doesn't seem to be able to do what navies like to do, i.e. exert sea control over the uh, over the, the northwest part of the Black Sea. Thank you very much uh, for that, Dom Nichols. Uh, Francis Stanley, uh, what other updates do you have for us? Thank you, David. Afternoon, everybody. There's been a few updates on the diplomatic front in the past 24 hours, which I just wanted to, uh, to report before um, going into a more in-depth on one particular article that's been published in the past 24 hours, which is an absolutely, well, treasure trove, to, to, to say the least, of, of, of analysis and, and reportage. Um, but first of all, Putin has accused Washington, surprise, surprise, of seeking to prolong the conflict in Ukraine and of fueling conflicts elsewhere in the world, um, including uh, the visit of uh, US House Speaker Nancy Pelosi to Taiwan. And uh, he's quoted as saying, the situation in Ukraine shows that the US is trying to prolong this conflict and they act in exactly the same way, fueling the potential for conflict in Asia, Africa and Latin America. These are in some televised remarks. Now, I don't think this is anything particularly new, but it just speaks to the Russian narrative, which uh, continues to blame NATO encroachment on Ukraine as being the main trigger point for this war and indeed still painting the US and Western powers as aggressors. In other news, uh, Putin has also offered to send advanced weapons to bolster his allies around the world, uh, including boosting relations with Kim Jong-un, the North Korean leader. I mean, I don't know what it says about you, really, if you're uh, dealing with uh, Kim Jong-un giving weapons to the North Koreans. But um, clearly he sees this as a part of uh, Russian strategy to 
continue to uh, forge alliances regardless of who they're with around the world as they've become increasingly diplomatically isolated. And finally, uh, he has also boasted about the Kremlin's arsenal at at Russia's annual arms expo, which traditionally attracts delegations from around the world. Um, But obviously this year, because of the invasion, the conference is much more low-key event. So those are the main sort of diplomatic updates uh, for the past 24 hours, mostly relating to what Putin has been saying in his televised remarks, but nothing particularly shocking, as I say, but just reiterating a Russian narrative about Western imperialism and Russia still being able to push above its weight in inverted commas around the world. Well, thank you very much, Francis, for that. Um, Let's get into this uh, fascinating Washington Post article. Um, There's all sorts of things going on there. It's all about the sort of the the lead up to war and the struggle that um, the Brits and the Americans had to convince the world that uh, this this attack was coming. And what did you take? Could you sketch out what the arguments and what the thoughts from this article were, Francis, and then let us know what, what, what you took away from it? Yeah, so it's the very definition of a long read. And I must say to, to listeners, uh, that it is, it is really, I would say, an essential read in terms of shining a light uh, on the months, weeks, days, even hours prior to the invasion in terms of the very, very high level conversations taking place in Washington, in Kiev, in London, in Geneva, all around Europe and the world, and of course, in the Kremlin. And uh, it just has a a real, as I say, treasure trove of detail on on, on all different angles, really, of of the war. And indeed, it summarises the article thus. um, This account, in previously unreported detail, shines new light on the uphill climb to restore US credibility, the attempt to balance secrecy around intelligence with the need to persuade others of its truth, and the challenge of determining how the world's most powerful military alliance would help a less than perfect democracy on Russia's border defy an attack without NATO an attack, sorry, without NATO firing a shot. So that's a sort of summary of the article. But in terms of the details I wanted to pluck from this, and I say it really needs to be read in full to be fully appreciated talks about the how again something that we've sort of known and speculated about but goes into more detail on the original Russian military strategy foremost among them was the attempt to seize Kiev in three to four days apparently the Spetsnaz uh, the special forces if uh, Don will forgive my usage of that term um, the plan was for them to find and remove Zelensky killing him if necessary and installing a Kremlin friendly puppet government as soon as possible obviously that did not uh, happen but that was clearly the intention after then pausing to regroup and rearm their intention was to push westward uh, f- towards a sort of north south line stretching from Moldova to western Belarus leaving a rump Ukrainian state in the West. And the area apparently that Putin was sort of calculating was was populated by irredeemable neo-Nazi Russophobes. So uh, not attempting to sort of seize the whole country, at least not initially, but 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 much, much larger portions of the country than he has, has been able to succeed in achieving thus far and seizing thus far. Um, But then it goes back in time and talks about how the intelligence came about that was predicting the the invasion and the piecing together of the analysis, not only from the Kremlin perspective, but also from how Washington and London and other places were 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 picking up on what the Kremlin was intending to do. And it would appear that Putin was essentially realising from the Russian sort of perspective that, that time was running out for him to if he was going to make a move on Ukraine, time was running out 
the direction of travel was one that wanted a the country wanted a, a freer, more democratic future, one without Moscow interference. Of course, we'd had the Orange Revolution 2004-2005, the, um, the, the protests that preceded the Russian annexation of Crimea, and this sense also that he was getting older and that if he was going to do anything, that time was running out. So uh, this, this, these were calculations being made uh, towards the end of last year. And indeed, there was, uh, as I say, a reaction to this happening in intelligence communities around the world. But what you read and what you discover in reading this article is the extent to which various different countries believed different things. Um, and uh, as the article says, there were basically three flavours. Um, this is according to a senior administration official in Washington, um, uh, that, that, that some powers sort of believed it, that it was all coercive diplomacy, that Russia, that Putin was building up to see what he could get. He was not going to invade. Um, so that was perhaps more common, as I say, in Western Europe, Germany and in Paris. However, many of NATO's newer members in Eastern and Southeastern Europe thought Putin may do something, but it would be limited in scope. Um, so we're essentially, uh, quoting from the article, try and take a bite at the Ukrainian apple. But it was Britain and the Baltic states, which were always nervous about Russia's intentions and believed that the full-scale invasion was incoming. And indeed, a lot of the central thrust of this article is saying that Britain was trying to persuade the rest of Europe and indeed negotiating with Washington to, make, to impress upon them the intelligence they were receiving that this was very, very serious and a serious threat of full-scale invasion. So that's one theme uh, in, in, in the article. Another is actually Zelensky himself, clearly a character who was profoundly underestimated by almost all Western powers, including in, in Washington, um, believed that he was sort of not really trusted to, of course, we've talked about at length about him being a, a comedian, not a politician by training, fear that he was going to be completely out of his depth. Um, and actually then showing how uh, Zelensky had a far perhaps deeper understanding of what was at stake than indeed many of the other powers, which I'll turn to in a moment. Uh, just another thing about Zelensky, however, he did doubt the invasion himself, and the article goes in length about that, that uh, he was not completely convinced by the intelligence that he was receiving from from, from Britain and, uh, and elsewhere. And indeed, he was sort of downplaying the threat of the war to the Ukrainian people as well. Um, but then when it became more increasingly obvious that the war was actually uh, now in a, a real possibility and a real likelihood the the article is it goes in depth into the sort of things that he was saying to to uh, western officials so a quote you can you can't simply say to me listen you should prepare people now and tell them they need to put money away they need to store up food if we had communicated that and that is what some people wanted then i would have been giving seven billion dollars a month sorry, losing $7 billion a month since last October. At the moment when the Russians did attack, they would have taken us in three days. Generally, our inner sense was right. If we sow chaos among people before the invasion, the Russians will devour us. Because during chaos, people flee the country. So it goes on. For Zelensky, the decision to keep people in the country where they could fight to defend their homes was the key to repelling any invasion. He goes on. Quote, as cynical as it may sound, those are the people who stopped everything, he said. So uh, uh, sort of a depth of understanding from Zelensky there that perhaps was um, not expected, or certainly not expected by uh, Western officials. However, it wasn't all um, uh, sort of trust and, 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 uh, and easy conversations. Evidently, they were actually, Zelensky himself mistrusted certain Western officials. 
Um, he there was fears that uh, they actually wanted him to flee so that some sort of Russian government, puppet government, could be installed that could then reach a negotiated settlement with NATO powers. I should say there's absolutely there, there isn't actually any evidence of that, but it reports it as a concern, a legitimate concern that was held in in Kiev. Um, and and then, it, as I say, the other thing that the article really talks about is is, is Zelensky's sort of firmness on his desire to stay come what may that he really sought the future of the country was in the government remaining in Kiev and I think history will prove him right in that so that's another interesting pillar um, just a penultimate pillar sorry is it penultimate or final um, yeah the, penult- the, the, the penultimate pillar in, in, in the piece um, that I just wanted to talk about is uh, some very interesting conversations that are, that are regaled by um, uh, senior military officials, uh, b- both within Russia and Washington and in London. Uh, so it talks about some of the very last dish attempts to avert uh, the war, particularly conversations between Blinken and, uh, and, and Sergei Lavrov, the Russian minister. And it talks about a very frank conversation that took place between two of them where he asked him, what are you really trying to do? To which uh, Lavrov effectively walked out um, when confronted in a way because they couldn't find any real understanding or an honest reflection of what the Kremlin wanted in order to deter military invasion, which, of course, that's because there was no intention to deter military invasion. And lastly, some interesting snippets from uh, Ben Wallace, who, of course, um, Dominic Nichols has spent considerable time um, uh, talking to and, and and following in recent weeks um, about his discussions with uh, the, the Russian generals, um, in co- including Shoigu, um, and Wallace warning him and saying, I know the Ukrainians, I've visited Ukraine five times, and they will fight. And then uh, Shoigu replied, my mother's Ukrainian, implying that he knew the people better. It's all part of our same country. And as I say, that's the other final pillar I just wanted to talk about in relation to this, is that you really get the sense that the line that Putin put out in July in that famous essay, or notorious essay, should I say now, um, about seeing Ukraine and Russia as one people and one country, was not something that was just a cynical ploy um, put out as an excuse for the war, but seemed to genuinely have a more sincere belief within the Russian leadership, that this was something that had been a shift in agenda clearly shaped by Putin, but also one that was recognised, believed in by many senior um, Russian officials prior to the war. So... um, in that sense, a very, very enlightening article and, of course, in many others. And forgive me for, for talking for so long on it, but it is a long read and I've only summarised there some of the key things that I've plucked out of it, but a lot to digest and I would highly recommend to uh, our listeners to to read it in full and credit to the reporters and journalists at the Washington Post who've done a fantastic job at writing, I think, one of the most important pieces of analysis of the war so far. Well, thank you very much for that, Francis. Um, can I ask, after reading it, was there any pieces of information, any tidbits that, that surprised you or that were completely new to you? Because quite a lot of this feels like feels like it slots into a lot of our analysis of the conflict so far, or at least isn't too far off. Was there anything complete that you didn't expect at all? Um, I think what was really what's really striking when you read it is just quite how 
frank the tensions really were between uh, European powers. Now, as you say, we've reported on this very heavily and I don't think any of our analysis has been been wrong. And so there's no sort of shocking lessons from that sense. But when you actually read, as you do in the article, about really frank conversations taking place between these various different blocks within Europe who who believed or didn't believe in the intelligence, you just realise the, the, the extent to which that those tensions were playing out in real time, that they weren't hypothetical, that there were genuinely leaders and Western intelligence officials who were saying, this is not going to happen, that you're deluding yourselves, you know, that this is poor intelligence. And then there were other countries who were saying, no, look, you really need to take this incredibly seriously, that there is now an invasion that is imminent. And it, when you actually read that in full, you, you, it, it suddenly becomes very stark, I would say, and it comes into sharper focus. Obviously, as you say, there's no, there's no sort of great revelations to say about Zelensky's role. We've talked at length on this podcast about the significance of, of Zelensky's decisions, which I think are underlined in in this in a, in a very significant way. Um, I, I think probably the biggest revelation, if I can articulate it as such, is the one that I just spoke about there at the end, which is the sense that this was something that certain... Russian officials really believed in this sort of idea that, that Ukraine belonged or was the property of Russia and that this was something more deeply ideological as opposed to sort of Machiavellian realpolitik, that there is something philosophical, cultural, deeper at play here. Um, uh, and and just also as well, I think it's probably worth saying as well, you really get sort of the blinkered approach of the Russian officials and in, t- in both intelligence and in politics on here, the sense in which nothing was going to divert them. They had uh, clear intentions at, at hand. And when they were confronted uh, genuinely with, with uh, to by Western officials trying to say, look, what do you want? You know, what, what can we do to avoid this war? They had no answer for them. And I think when you actually read it in such terms and you realise there was actually no escaping this by the time you know, Western officials were reacting. You realise the depth of perhaps the miscalculations in 2015 with the annexation of Crimea. So um, it, not necessarily a revelation because we've known about that, but certainly it's really, really interesting when you actually read it in black and white as you do in this long read. Francis, can I jump in here and ask a question, please? I must admit, hold my hand up here, I've not read the article yet, but I'd be interested if, if you thought there was uh, the article nodded at all to the following or if you had your own thoughts. Was there any suggestion that, that Putin's calculus over invading Ukraine now in 2022 was, was bolstered by the West's lack of action in 2014, the lack of action over the use of chemical weapons in Syria, and more recently the... Um, the withdrawal from Afghanistan and the um, the narrative around that of of an intelligence failure. I wonder if if those things sort of bolstered Putin thinking that the West just aren't they're just not interested. They're not going to get involved. Got too many domestic pressures, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, or, or or maybe he also thought that even if the intelligence communities got it right this time and were saying, hey, look, th- there is going to be an invasion of Ukraine, that the legacy of those other three issues or, or Iraq, Afghanistan and uh, the withdrawal from Afghanistan in particular, meant that the the um, the credibility of the intelligence product was was less and the analysis was less and that the, that Putin might have thought that the politicians are less likely to to listen to them this time. Just wonder if there was either any nod to that in the article or, or your thoughts on it. Well, actually, what's interesting, Dom, is that the there is 
degrees of scepticism caused by the long shadow of Iraq and Afghanistan. But that scepticism wasn't within the Kremlin or, or measuring of the weakness, although no doubt that was part of it, but it's just not discussed in the article. But it's actually within uh, Western countries. Western intelligence. So uh, what you what you read in the piece is that some of these countries that were more sceptical about the invasion are actually posing this uh, or, or, or framing it in a way of saying, well, how do you know you're right, Washington, Britain, MI6, etc.? How do you know you're right on this? You've been wrong before. So... Um, the, 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 in that sense, the, the, the influence of, of, of the intelligence failures around Iraq in particular did play a role here, perhaps not in the way that, um, that, we, that we would necessarily expect in relation to the Kremlin. In terms of Afghanistan, however, and particularly the, the withdrawal, that does play into this. So it talks a, a, about the the problems that uh, or, or seemingly certain calculations being made in the Kremlin as a result of that withdrawal. Um, it seemed to suggest that uh, President Biden and generally America was not wanting to or did not have the desire to be involved in foreign wars, that there was a sense of malaise and exhaustion with what might be i think president biden has called forever wars you know wars that don't seemingly have clear objectives and clear end in mind and that this was a strike a golden opportunity but whilst it's framed in those terms uh, in in a sort of short termist sense there's something else here which is more broad which is that actually it talks about this this sort of feeling that the the Putin realised that time was running out if he ever had any ambitions on Ukraine, that it was not necessarily all short-termist calculations, but this has been a long-term goal and he realised that if he was going to do it, time was not only running out for him, given his age, perhaps even his health, but also more broadly that the direction of travel for Ukraine's future was one that was incompatible with what he saw as, as Ukraine needing to be within the Russian sphere. And so in that sense, he, he looked at a West that was wobbling on Afghanistan and interventionism that was already economically weakened by um, uh, generally a poor economic and then COVID, of course, strikes. And that all of these things play into um, the, 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 the timing of this. And I think that's the key thing is that it played into the timing, but not the desire. The desire was there earlier. And and in that sense, I think that the essay read, written in July that a lot of people poo-pooed as just being appealing to a domestic audience now seems far more serious and one that of course will have big implications for for any future ceasefire or or, or lack or lack thereof um, given the, uh, the 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 serious and the ideological underpinning that seems to be being used to justify this war in russia well thank you very much for that francis and uh, dom for your question um we must say to all of our listeners do do go and read the piece uh, we've been talking about it now for about 15 minutes but it's on the washington post's website uh, and thank you very much to, to the Post and to their journalists for for, for writing it. Um, Tom, can I come to you? You in, in your pre in your pre episode notes, you've told us about you, t- you told us about how you were likely taken to task by Latvia's defence minister. Um, can you tell us what happened there? Yeah, sure. And I think there's a, a salutary lesson here for for many people. Um, first and foremost, me. Uh, so this was last week in Copenhagen for the for the latest round of the uh, the conferences on military aid to Ukraine, military equipment, training and, and money. Um, as I was there, it was kind of a day, day and a half and it was all, all good. We've spoken about it before. The big, the big headlines were a, a pot of gold, 450 million euros to buy kit rather than backfill uh, 
countries that have sent stuff. This is actually to go out and buy and buy stuff. Uh, so that was a goodie, and there were a few other a few other bits and pieces as well. But we've done that, and um, you can you can listen back to that if you if you've not heard that or we, we've written about it. But in the in the press conference at the end of the day, um, a lot was made of the training, uh, the ongoing training, mainly in the UK, but elsewhere around Europe, but mainly in the UK with this this large international. Uh, coalition, if you like, uh, I'm going to get, I'm going to leave someone off. So apologies, but New Zealand, Sweden, Norway, um, Denmark, uh, Holland, Canada uh, are sending sending troops to Britain to train Ukrainian soldiers. And I asked Alexei Reznikov, Ukraine's defence minister. I said, does does that mean? Do you do you think that the training of Ukrainian troops directly for this war? Do you think, Mr. Reznikov, that this puts those trainers and the training areas in in any greater threat would Russia see them as a legitimate target? End of quote. End of question. Okay, that was why I asked him, and he he said no, no, no way at all. Um, he said that uh, it would be madness for Russia to uh, take the ne- uh, to take a next step on the way to third world war. That was basically what he said. So he he said no, fine, okay, um, maybe a, maybe a bit more of a. A robust response than I was expecting, but yeah, very clear, very clear answer. Thank you, and, and off, off we go. And just before we moved on, because uh, I'll ask a question of, of Iceland's foreign minister as well about the demining work that um, that Iceland is going to lead on. Just before we moved on, Latvia's defence minister Artis Pabrix sort of lunge, not lunge is too strong a word. He he moved forward and he sort of you know took the microphone from um, from in front of Alexei Reznikov. And he he said to me, he said, if I can just make one, just make one sentence, and uh, and I knew I was in trouble. He was in trouble straight away. I mean, he's a, he's a nice guy. I've spoken to him before, um, and he, you know, he, he doesn't he doesn't mess around. He knows his, knows his onions. But he was he had this had this smile on his face that um, was about as warm as the sunshine bouncing off the newly polished bonnet, bonnet of a hearse. Um, so I knew I was about to get a spanking. And he said. He said, "You, you use the phrase legitimate targets." He said, "There are no legitimate targets in Ukraine for uh, for Russia's aggression." Um, and he said, "It's really important that we make we make that point." And so, yeah, Julie, Julie hastened. I uh, yeah, sort of nodded. And I chatted to him afterwards. He was absolutely fine. But and I've, I've been reflecting on that over the last um, last week, and he's absolutely right. You know, it was uh, loose, uh, casual language, I guess. This this idea of legitimate target it just made me realize that you know, we've been looking at this war up close for six months now and and I, I had allowed and this is, this is my caution for everybody I'd allowed this to become normal I'd allowed my framework in order to understand this war and stay up to date with it I'd allowed the framework to build that this was this was normal I'm op- operating within this framework and I, you know, I'm using the language of high Mars and this and deep strike and you know, Kharkiv and all these sorts of things and bits and pieces. And what I, what I've maybe moved away from was that that it was it's still an, it's still outrageous, it's immoral, it's egregious, it's disgusting what's going on here. And I use, you know, I use these words in my journalism as we all do. But but I just wondered if if I had allowed these words to be slightly watered down and 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 whether or not this is part of the malaise that we are said to be experiencing this phrase ukraine fatigue is is becoming increasingly used and i just wondered if i mean i'm not fatigued by ukraine and the war but i just wondered if i had given russia too much benefit there by 
by framing it in terms of this is normal. We are now there is a war, um, and and there's legitimate and and, and illegitimate targets. And Mr. Probrooks was quite right to say, no, 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 no. Let's draw it back down to base level. There are no legitimate targets here. This is illegal and immoral. This act that Russia has decided to take against its neighbour. And I just thought after I thought, yeah, that was that was that was. Um, that was a neat intervention and a very diplomatic one, like I say, with a nice smile, <laughs> although it could have cut glass. Um, and I just I just offer that up to say, look, this is what we de- have been dealing with. And people listening to this are probably closer to it than, than many. But we should we should not allow ourselves to not be outraged. We should still feel shock every time we see people being killed and, 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 and children's playgrounds with you know, missiles in them and all the rest of it. We should still be outraged. We should still feel shocked. Um, Putin wants us to be bored and disinterested and to switch off and to stop messaging our political leaders to to do something here. And he just wants us to turn away and wants this to be normal and for us all to, to move on and get on with the next thing. And I, uh, you know, I never thought I'd be in that position. So I offer this as a cautionary tale. I'm Spartacus. So take take from it what you will. But yeah, this is not normal. It's, it's never been normal. It shouldn't be normal. And um, and it, it might take might take the sort of the warm blush of of criticism from a, from a, a defence minister to to just to make make me realise that actually I need to just need to keep policing myself on that. And um, I'd ask you to do the same. If I could just echo everything that Dom has just said there, I think just broadly speaking, it's absolutely right um, that we should continue to be outraged. And of course, the challenge is uh, when this is something that you're covering every day or we're reading about every day is that you do become desensitised to it. But as Dom was just saying, that is a central pillar, I would argue, as Dom has just argued, of Putin's strategy. He would have known that there would have been a shocked reaction from the West. He's not a fool. But he would have been relying on the fact that the West would eventually adjust to the new reality and would tire of it, particularly when the impact of that begins to be felt in people's wallets back home, which, of course, it will be this winter. So we need to continue to be outraged by that. We need to continue to remember that this is a war that was started by a a megalomaniac aggressor and continue to ensure that this is not something that we ever move away from being shocked by because if we do and we become numb to these kind of acts then we will be creating a future of might that is right and one that we will all rue as we already are but will rue I would argue even more severely. Well thank you Dom and Francis uh, for that. Uh, yeah I think <clears throat> Dom you and I I think experienced something something of it didn't we when we when we were in Ukraine if, if you weeks ago and listeners old and new if you haven't heard those episodes do go back on the podcast apps and listen to them there's about five of us trying to get into ukraine going to kiev and then getting out again but it really does hit you when you're when you're traveling towards the capital city having driven across um um volin rivnir and jotomir the the, the the blasts to the to the west of kiev and there's not too many there's not too too much um evidence of the war there are checkpoints some of them and some of them are manned and some of them are not and then you get to a point coming into Kiev, and the highway sort of comes in for slightly from the northwest, the highway that we were on, and suddenly the you start seeing the destroyed houses and the the shopping malls have been completely gutted. Um, the, you, the the most striking thing I think I remember seeing, we we tried to take pictures, but it was a bit dark at this point. Were footbridges going over the highway that the the central section of the bridge had been completely destroyed, and only the the sort of one side going up and the other side coming down 
uh, was still extant. Um, and, and that's sort of, yeah, that, that, that when you're suddenly there and seeing it, and you, 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 it, it's one thing, you know, as you said, Dom, doing this for six months and thinking of it slightly like, you know, arrows on a map and num- numbers and all that kind of thing and strategy, and then actually to see what it really means, which is a home blown up or a, um, your, your local your local shopping centre um, destroyed in a fire or missiles landing on your neighbour's house or a, or a tank at the end of your street with it, with its turret swivelling around maybe to target your apartment who, who knows that's that's when it sort of comes comes home and as and as Dom and Francis have said you know that's that's why we we'll be here every day doing this um, we've we're starting to run out of time however today unfortunately so Dom and Francis can I just get your final thoughts please yeah sure so my final thought bit bit like yesterday I was saying we should keep an eye out for the narrative from Russia about what happened in the Saki Air Base. I was a bit nervous that they were quiet. A friend of mine um, who has lived and worked in Russia for many, many years says that when Russia is making lots of noise and moving about and throwing his arms in the air, you don't need to worry about it. When Russia goes quiet, that's when you need to worry. So for the last few days, I have been a little bit worried because there's been so little communication. So, so they haven't tried to frame the narrative about Saki. Now looks like actually it's because they haven't got an answer. They've got, they can't answer it. They've they've made a, a horrendous mistake and uh, and they've and something's got in there. Now with these blasts today, and um, like I say, we think there are at least three major blasts today. I, I just wonder how Russia is going to respond to that, either physically on the ground or in, ter- in terms of the narrative. Don't forget, of course, that the Crimean or, or social media from people in Crimea will be will be awash with this. So there's no hiding it from Moscow and no hiding it from the population in Russia. So I think there has to be some kind of response from Russia, um, not necessarily uh, in terms of narrative. It might be physical. It could be, you know, well, who, who knows what? Let's not speculate for now. But I just I just ask. I think we should keep an eye on the narrative coming out from Moscow about what is happening in Crimea. Thank you very much, Dom. Uh, Francis, would you like the final words? Well, I just wanted to comment on something following our conversation yesterday about the the nuclear threat. Um, There's been some research that's been done by uh, a university in the United States that uh, posits what would happen in the event of a nuclear war between Russia and the US. And, well, as you can imagine, it makes pretty bleak reading. Two-thirds of the people on the planet would die from starvation within two years of said war. And uh, the detonations would cause massive fires and inject soot into the atmosphere, blocking sunlight from reaching the surface and devastating crops. So I say um, uh, pretty bleak stuff. The reason I mention it is not because this should come as any great shock to us. Of course, this is you know the reality of the kind of horrors that we're talking about. But it just strikes me that this kind of rhetoric that we've been hearing from Moscow about constantly threatening judgment days, the use of new nuclear weapons, hypersonic weapons, Satan 2, all of these things. It's just how heinous this is. And how can any society, any leader, be be threatening the use of these kind of weapons as liberally as Russia does? It just It's just utterly appalling. And it speaks to this kind of desensitisation that we have, I think, all of us to an extent uh, succeed uh, found over the past six months, whereby it has become normalised to be talking about these kind of threats in a sort of detached, analytic, strategic way. And this is the reality of what these things would actually mean and are meaning on the ground now, these new horrific weapons that have been tried and tested um, in Ukraine by the Russians. And it's cost lives. It's not just weaponry that's, you know, that's analytics and mathematics. These are people's lives. And it just it just strikes me that we are 
the, the, the very fact that any country can talk about threat and seriousness of nuclear war, nuclear annihilation, as liberally as, as Russia does, I think speaks volumes to the nature of that state, ultimately. And, and it will be more for us in the Western world if we r- brush all that off, just say, oh, well, that's classic Russian behaviour, and not really see if what it is, which is ultimately heinous and dangerous. And, and I think that my biggest fear now is that if there are, is a long winter, one that, you, you know, where Europe suffers, that, that, that there is now increasing pressure on Zelensky to sign some sort of ceasefire, or indeed perhaps even Putin would try and uh, declare a ceasefire and keep what he's maintained, that there would be enough people uh, who would be pushing for then some sort of resumption of deals with Russia, with energy, on all sorts of fronts, to try and bring Russia back into the diplomatic fold, with good intentions of bringing Russia in and trying to improve things from obviously now this uh, uh, very dire situation. But what they will be doing is an enabling a state that threatens the world in this way. And I don't think that could end well. And indeed, I think history would show that it doesn't end well. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk slash audio. And sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, And today on Twitter, Claire Hubble. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. 
That's stamps.com. Code program.